We welcome all who are returning to us in growing numbers here at St. Anne's and always a warm welcome to those who join us by way of live stream at your homes or wherever you are here in Washington or abroad. We are all united in bonds of charity that know no end, whether we are here physically or spiritually. And I've been told that at the end of this month, the weekend of 26, 27 of June, that the liberty of not having to attend Mass in person will be lifted, so the obligation comes back to us at the end of June if it applies to you with age to attend Mass in person. But that doesn't mean that we will discontinue our live streaming because there are so many who are sick and homebound that need this service and we are delighted to do that and we thank you for joining us. A little boy came home one Sunday from catechism, from Sunday school, and his dad said, son, what did they teach you today? He said, oh, they taught us about the great miracle that took place at the Red Sea when the Israelites crossed over to the Promised Land. He said, oh, tell me about it. He said, well, dad, what I was remembering was, see, the Israelites were trying to get away from the Egyptians and they got to the shores of the Red Sea and they couldn't pass over and they wanted to get to the other side and the Egyptians were hot on their tail and they were trying to get there and kill them. So at that moment the Air Force came in and put up all these pontoon bridges across the Red Sea and the Israelites got onto the pontoons and made their way over to the Promised Land. And then the Egyptians arrived and saw the pontoons and they got on the pontoons too to pursue the Egyptians, to pursue the Israelites. And at that moment, the Air Force came in again and bombed all the pontoons and the Egyptians, they were killed. And so that's how it went. He said, what are they teaching you these days? Is that how it really happened? He said, well, Dad, if I told you the truth, you would never believe me. Aren't there a lot of things about Jesus and all those stories of the New Testament that are so hard to believe? We say they are just that incredible, unbelievable. Who would ever believe that Jesus, for example, walked on water? Who would believe that? Who would believe that he raised Lazarus from the dead? Who would believe that he would take some water and convert it into huge amounts of wine or multiply loaves and fishes to feed 5,000? Who would believe that he would rise from the dead and appear to his apostles for 40 days and eat with them? Who would believe his ascension? Who would believe the Immaculate Conception? Who would believe that God has a mother who would believe that God is three persons in one? Who would believe any of this stuff? That's why the boy said, Dad, if I told you the truth, you wouldn't believe me. So I have to make it up. That's interesting, isn't it? See, if I were writing the Gospels, and I'm glad I didn't, but if I were 2,000 years ago, I would have cut out all the stuff that I thought would be unbelievable. 
Because why? I, I would think my audience down the road would want to focus on the stuff that is believable. Like what? That Jesus was maybe just a good prophet? They'd believe that. In fact, most of the world believes that Jesus is a good prophet, or at best, an unorthodox prophet. Wise teachings, love, charity, patience, kindness, forgiveness, all the stuff that goes into the, the life of virtues, basically Aristotle with some grace. The world would get that. The world would accept Jesus on those terms because that's the way most of those writings go in the case of world religions. It's basically about a good man who got in trouble, got killed in the end, and we're used to those stories of great leaders who in the end get killed for a cause of justice or peace or love. And isn't that really at the heart of Christianity, right? See, that's the way I would write it. And bleach out all the other miracles and and I especially would bleach out uh, this whole feast of Corpus Christi because how does bread become his body? How does wine become his blood? Who's going to believe that? Well, it's very interesting that these Jews for Jesus 2,000 years ago didn't bleach it out. They could have. They could have easily said that Jesus is just another prophet, like Moses and Isaac and Jacob and Ezekiel, Isaiah. But they had a terribly different experience of this Jesus of Nazareth. He wasn't just a prophet for them. He wasn't just a nice guy, a guru, a founder of some movement. No, 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 they, they, they experienced something very different, radically different. Perhaps more than any other event, it was the resurrection on Easter Sunday. But everything else then would make sense in light of the resurrection of the body. If Jesus could do this, if he could be raised from the dead, glorified and appear to them as he did, then all those miracles and all those unbelievable events would make sense. And so they wrote it down. They started recording a lot. In fact, they couldn't remember all of them. St. Mark in his gospel said there were more miracles that could be recorded. We just don't have time or room to do that. So who's going to believe it? Well, the church has believed it for 2,021 years. And you believe it because you're here to renew that faith in these unbelievable, these incredible mysteries of faith. That's why we come to Mass over and over and over again in habitual practice so that it is renewed in us every time. All those stories, all those miracles, all the grace that goes with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and most importantly, his body and blood. 
See, at the Last Supper, Jesus did something that these Jews did not understand. He was performing the Passover ritual, and at a certain point, he stopped. And he took the bread, and instead instead of just blessing it and breaking it, he said, this is my body. No Jew had ever done that in the history of the Passover ritual. They must have been shocked. These were ritual Jews. They were orthodox. And he changes the words. He changes the whole motif. And then with the wine, instead of just blessing it and passing it around, he said, no, this is my blood. The blood of the new and eternal covenant. Let's reflect on that now. See, there had been other covenants in the past, but they were all but foreshadowing this eternal, perfect covenant. And how is that covenant sealed? It's sealed by the blood of the victim. In this case, the blood of the God-man. In other cases, the covenants were sealed with the blood of lambs, or goats, or bulls. In other world religions, blood was always covenanted through the victim of human sacrifice, the blood of the newborn prince, the Aztec religion, for example. And then there was the eating and drinking of the body and blood of the victim. That has been from caveman even to the present in certain parts of the world. We call it cannibalism. It's actually spiritual sacrifice, communion with the body and blood of the victim. So what our Lord is doing is he's very aware of the natural order of religion, which is eating and drinking of the victim of sacrifice in some spiritual communion for power, immortality, and he's perfecting it in himself. This is why St. Paul can say in today's second reading, for this reason, he, Christ, is mediator of a new covenant. Since a death has taken place for deliverance from transgressions under the old covenants, those who are called now may receive the promised eternal inheritance. In other words, the pledge and promise of immortality. And not just soul, but body and soul glorified. So other religions have had their attempts to sacrifice, but they're all imperfect because why? The victim is always imperfect, it's always natural. In this case, it's quite the opposite. This is a supernatural victim. And so the power of Christ's sacrifice is not on a par with any other sacrifice the world has ever known in religion. So Christianity emerges as a very distinct kind of religion because its victim of sacrifice is perfect. This is what our Lord is saying. He doesn't mess around with words. He could have said, and again, if I were writing the gospel, I would have edited this to make it more acceptable, more believable. I would have said, this is bread, which is a symbol of life and fellowship and goodwill. Every time you break bread, go for it. No, he didn't say that. He said, this is my body. He didn't say it could be a symbol of my body, a representation of my body, a metaphor, a poetic kind of thing. See, that's believable. But he says, this is my body. Who would believe that? They did. And with wine. He could have said wine, um, kind of a 
symbol of, again, fellowship and family and fun and a good time had by all. Do it. Go for it. This is my blood. So the Catholic Church takes seriously this language because the apostles did. It was so different for them. And so because it was so different, they were just amazed. And they weren't afraid to write it down because whether or not people understood it or accepted it, that wasn't the point. It's what happened. And we few, we blessed few of brothers and sisters over 2,000 years, we're the ones who receive all of this from them. As St. Paul says, I pass on to you what I myself received, namely that on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, said the blessing, broke it, gave it to them, and said, this is my body. Paul is writing some 15, 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Paul did not know Jesus personally. He was not one of the apostles in the beginning. He comes on the scene much later, and he's a very educated scholar of the law. He's a Jewish Pharisee. So he is amazed that these Jews are beginning to understand the ritual of Passover in a new way, a very different way than the ancients. This is my body, this is my blood for you in a new covenant. So every time then we come to Mass, every time you hear the priests say those sacred words, they're not mine, they're not made up, they're not edited. They are the words of Jesus, who wants to remain with us, body and blood, for all time. During this last year of the pandemic, since March of 2020, many of us have not been together. We have missed each other. We have longed to be present to each other, bodily, physically, personally. We've had to artificially invent ways to communicate through Zoom or our live streaming. All that's a wonderful attempt, but we know that that pales by comparison to the authentic, real, real presence of family members and friends. And isn't it a wonderful thing that we can begin to see each other without our masks and to recognize each other as we are, personally? physically present to each other. We long for that. We miss our loved ones. We want to be with them and to be with them always. This is a natural psychological disposition. Everybody has this in the world. It's not just us, it's from caveman to the present. And so if that's true in the natural order, how much more so it would be true in the supernatural order. We want to be as present to God and if we could be as present to God in a real experience bodily, well, that's what happens. This is my body. This is my blood. Take, eat, take, drink. Let me commune with you. Let us be one together and make it real. Christ makes it real. We are present to him. He is present to us in the real presence of his body and blood. If I 
were to tell you another story, you might believe that one. But I've told you the story that the church has given for over two millennia. And we can say with them, with Thomas, my Lord and my God, we can say, I believe, Jesus, you are truly present. And thank you for the gift of your body and blood that gives me life and the pledge and promise in the new covenant, the eternal covenant of life eternal.